0: Welcome back to the 10 Blocks Podcast. This is Seth Barron, Associate Editor of City Journal. Joining me on the show today is a friend of the podcast, Christopher Rufo. Chris is a documentary filmmaker based in Seattle. He's the director of the Discovery Institute's Center on Wealth and Poverty and a City Journal contributing editor. You can find him on Twitter at RealChrisRuffo. Chris has been busy uncovering a major scandal this time inside the country's federal government where the ideology known as critical race theory has made inroads. We're excited to have him on the podcast to talk about it. Chris, thanks for joining us.
1: It's great to be with you.
0: So what is critical race theory?
1: Critical race theory uh, is the idea that uh, the United States was a country uh, founded on racism And that uh, American institutions, uh, such as the Constitution, uh, our legal system and our kind of social order, uh, kind of preaches the values on the surface of equality and freedom. Uh, But under the surface, uh, those are simply a mask uh, for white supremacy uh, and racial oppression. Uh, And it's basically a kind of Marxian dynamic of oppressor and oppressed. Uh, But rather than a kind of economic base of the bourgeoisie and the proletariat, uh, it's now taken on the kind of identity politics theory, uh, looking at uh, oppression dynamics through the lens of race.
0: I feel like we've been hearing a lot about this sort of thing. Like, for instance, The New York Times had their 1619 Project. Uh, Is that a version of critical race theory?
1: It is, yeah. I think the 1619 Project is really a historical expression of critical race theory's philosophical foundations, and um, you know, it kind of famously or infam- infamously, depending on which side you're on, uh, 1619 projects basically says the country was not founded in 1776 uh, with the kind of Declaration of Independence and the liberal social order, uh, equality under the law, all men are created equal. Uh, but in fact, it was founded in 1619 with the arrival of the first slaves, and obviously, uh, slavery was a, a horrific institution. Uh, it has kind of uh, m- marked uh, American history, uh, but this is really not an attempt to expose the evils of slavery, which I think everyone agrees on, uh, but an attempt to refound the country uh, away from the kind of uh, American ideals and principles of, of equality and freedom and uh, replace them with the kind of historical practice of of slavery and oppression, which they argue continues to this day.
0: Oh, I see. Um, well. I mean, it's fine to kind of, you know, make a fuss about this, but it's critical race theory. It's pretty marginal, right? I mean, isn't this just something you hear in like, you know, I don't know, Oberlin seminars? I mean, who's, who's actually worrying about this?
1: Yeah, you'd think so. I mean, yeah, his, historically, if you look at uh, critical theory in general and then critical race theory in particular, uh, it's something that has really been kind of bandying about the academic community uh, since the 1960s and 70s. Um, and was really kind of relegated to the academic and intellectual margins uh, until quite recently and and in the last five ten uh, years it's really exploded it's kind of uh, kind of jumped out of the laboratory of academia and now kind of spread as the dominant ideology in 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 Honestly, many, if not most, of our public institutions, uh, the kind of critical race theory narrative uh, and then historical narrative of 1619 project and the kind of correlations from there, uh, are, are now kind of uh, kind of embedded in the academic K through 12 curriculum uh, in many uh, school districts around the country. Uh, and what I've been doing is is working on an investigative reporting, uh, showing how uh, critical race theory is now the kind of foundational operating ideology. Of the federal government and their HR and diversity training programs, uh, what? and well, hold, hold on,
0: hold on a minute. Um, the federal government is run by Donald Trump, who doesn't seem—I mean, he's very—you uh, know—in favor of the traditional American narrative. So you're telling me that hiring under him is is done according to this rubric.
1: Yeah, it, it, it's not so much hiring. There may be an element of that, but it's really about, um, you know, kind of what I think is very clear in the documents that I've uncovered, a, a kind of ideological indoctrination. And I, I don't use those terms lightly, uh, but what I've seen is that federal departments, uh, again, I've kind of release whistleblower documents and investigative reporting on this, are now trying to basically take the academic ideas of critical race theory and transform them into a kind of uh, HR department uh, kind of program where uh, in, in, in one case, uh, at the Sandia National Nuclear Laboratories, uh, they were taking white male executives uh, on a three day session, uh, teaching them how to uh, deconstruct their white male culture. Uh, essentially denounce uh, their kind of group identity uh, and then work uh, to, to kind of achieve this kind of progressive penance, uh, all on taxpayer dime. Uh, or, you know, the Treasury Department and the federal financial agencies have had uh, speakers who explicitly endorsed the 1619 historical narrative. They denounced the United States as an oppressive nation based on white supremacy. Uh, and then they offered uh, materials uh, teaching employees uh, how to essentially uh, kind of root out um, uh, kind of vestiges of internalized racism and kind of false consciousness uh, and join this kind of political and ideological movement of, of what they call anti-racism uh, through, um, in in some cases, racially segregated training sessions uh, and in others, uh, training sessions uh, where people are being essentially singled out uh, and, and denounced on their group identity.
0: Hmm. Well... I mean, I suppose it doesn't sound good to to have segregated anything, but what's wrong with anti racism and trying to get people to recognize their racism and overcome it?
1: Well, I think you know it's it's not predicated on the idea of finding people who are actual racists and correcting their behavior. Um, I think you know we could all agree that that's good if someone is doing something. Uh, that is racially discriminatory or a kind of race-based harassment, um, you know, we should stop that kind of behavior. But critical race theory goes a step deeper. And the documents uh, in federal agencies reveal this, uh, that they assume that by definition, uh, all white people are kind of, uh, have internalized white supremacy. They've internalized racism uh, and they've uh, kind of internalized, um, you know, what they, what they call uh, the essence of whiteness uh, that is to be kind of cast out. And it's very different from saying, hey, we should kind of stop uh, kind of racist behavior in the workplace, harassment in the workplace, and the idea that uh, by the nature and circumstances of your birth, you are by definition an irredeemable racist, uh, which I think is, is counter to uh, certainly my experience, uh, having met many people over the years from all different backgrounds, and also counter to the founding idea of equal protection under the law and the presumption of innocence, uh, and I think that it is extremely toxic and destructive. And from my reporting, uh, talking with people who have undergone these trainings, they say, you know, in some cases we had a great team of people. We all get along. We all got along great, uh, despite uh, different backgrounds. And after these kind of training sessions were kind of thrust upon the organization, uh, we've seen nothing but problems, division, toxic work environments. Uh, harassment uh, and a kind of degradation a kind of uh, kind of degraded capacity of the actual work that we're supposed to be doing. so
0: what happens in these in these segregated sessions like at the laboratory uh, you said that the white male executives were you know told to get together and sort of denounce themselves. but what specifically what kind of exercises do they run through? do you have any did you learn anything about that?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, in, in, I'll kind of use a couple different case studies to illustrate from a couple different federal agencies. But, you know, it all starts with saying, you know, the kind of the kind of assumption that uh, that uh, that people can be reduced to a racial essence. Uh, there's this kind of magical essence of whiteness. There's a magical essence of blackness. It can't be measured scientifically, but it is really the assumption. And whiteness in particular is singled out as something that is inherently. Uh, kind of racist, destructive, uh, and and uh, and 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 evil. In some cases, uh, they're saying, and so what they do is they first say, you know, you are by definition guilty of kind of uh, whiteness and white supremacy. So let's explore what that means. And in, in the case of the Sandia National Nuclear Laboratories, they actually had a participants write suggestions uh, for what they thought of as white male culture, and and the instructors wrote down. Uh, White supremacist, KKK, Aryan Nation, MAGA hat, uh, mass killings—all of these like horrific stereotypes. That uh, I mean, you know, certainly there are people that are uh, that are Klan members, et cetera. But I I I would be willing to wager a bet that the executives of our national nuclear laboratories uh, were were not uh, any of these things. And then once you've kind of established the kind of uh, race and group-based guilt, uh, then you do the hard work of of deconstructing it, uh, another word they use is interrupting it, uh, and kind of it, kind of internalizing uh, this kind of guilt and responsibility, and then signing up for their political and ideological program that offers not salvation because they claim that you will always be a, a, a racist, uh, but they, they offer a kind of uh, kind of suspension of guilt uh, as long as you are aligned with their ideological programming and the writer James Lindsay has done some great work where he, he actually goes through kind of textbook cult programming, kind of how do cults emerge? What techniques do they use to induct people? And how do they kind of maintain control over the social organism? And these race theory training sessions, as we've talked about it, follow almost to a T those same platforms and progress, and platforms and kind of progressions. And uh, and, and I think it's something that is you know, needs without, goes without saying, it has no place in any workplace. And certainly it has no place in a workplace that is funded by taxpayers. So um, what happens if
0: somebody resists the training or just says, well, I know that I'm not a racist? Is that considered an acceptable response? Can you opt out of this on that basis?
1: <laughs> that's you know this is that's a great question because it is the actual kind of uh, rhetorical and manipulative genius of critical race theory. Uh I I think of critical race theory specifically about kind of objections to it as an ingenious mouse trap. And what they've done is that they've they've kind of have a pre-packaged set of answers just like any kind of cult uh organization would do where um if you disagree with them it's just taken as another proof point that they're actually right. So in this example, if you're saying, hey, look, I'm a, you know, I'm a white employee at a federal agency. I, I don't believe that you know, in, in, in these theories, I don't think that you know, all white people are inherently kind of uh, have internalized racial oppression dynamics. I don't think that I personally am a racist. What they'll do is they'll say, well, actually, that's just your internalized white supremacy speaking. That's your white fragility speaking. That's your white privilege speaking. And actually, just the fact that you're resisting of this shows that you are actually at the kind of forefront of the problem. And we need to break down those ideas, break down your identity and bring you uh, into this kind of uh, kind of magical world where we can solve these social problems. So they don't accept dissent embedded in their argument uh, is this kind of mechanism uh, that turns dissent into an admission of guilt. Uh, It's it's dishonest. It's manipulative. Uh, but unfortunately, uh, it's very effective. And most people uh, that I've talked to are too scared to speak out uh, because they're scared of the consequences.
0: So in a way, it doesn't really sound like it's, I mean, my understanding of, a, of the scientific method and scientific theory is that a theory has to be falsifiable, but this sounds like it's unfalsifiable. So it's not really a theory in the in the, in the sense that most people would think of it. Um, what about in schools? You said that this is also happening in the K-12 through 12 cu- curricula. Um, can you elaborate on that?
1: It is, and, and this is something that is a, a deep concern for a lot of parents I've talked to in the last few months. Um, the, the the kind of school curriculum uh, that is decided in a decentralized way by school boards and, and school teachers and organizations, um, it, it has really adopted a lot of these theories where they're teaching... Uh, the 1619 Project is a kind of historical example. Uh, they're teaching the kind of concepts and ideas of critical race theory as far as, as far as as far as the kind of social studies or social uh, science curriculum, and uh, and then teachers are, are are being trained in mass uh, to kind of adopt this ideology and then to transmit this ideology. And one thing that has been really fascinating in the last couple months, as kids have gone back to school on Zoom, uh, is that parents are starting to have an inside window into exactly what their kids are learning. And there have been some kind of unbelievable videos uh, being kind of disseminated in the media of parents who are essentially horrified. They're saying, wow, I got this. I kind of walked in and I saw this teacher um, teaching, you know, uh, these kind of outrageous critical race theory inspired lessons. And then they, you know, post them on Twitter and they kind of explode because uh, I, I think for the first time, There's both the kind of widespread adoption of critical race theory or CRT in curricula, uh, but also uh, the kind of visibility because of this kind of bizarre moment of kind of pandemic-induced distance learning. And I I think that that is a big story. Uh, It maybe is the biggest story uh, that's happening right now. uh, And it's uh, attracting, uh, you know, both its kind of partisans and its detractors.
0: Well, I guess it's not that surprising that bureaucrats in the federal government and educrats in the uh, various school districts would have embraced this. But it's at least we know that um, good old-fashioned American capitalism, that American corporations are never going to embrace this radical philosophy. Uh, am I right in saying that?
1: no, you're wrong in saying that, unfortunately, is, uh, you know, kind of bizarrely, uh, American corporations have been, um, you know, very fast to adopt this, uh, very fast to embrace it, to teach it in their own HR programs, and then to subsidize it through both kind of hiring for-profit diversity consultants that that, that push this, uh, or actually outright giving kind of charitable gifts to the organizations that are... Uh, creating these uh, frameworks and and perpetuating these ideas. And it's a really kind of interesting moment where uh, corporations, uh, I I think from their own internal point of view, have the best of both worlds. Uh, They have a a kind of libertarian economic landscape where uh, corporations are very profitable. They have quite quite low tax rates. uh, The regulatory burden is is manageable um, uh, for these largest corporations. And then they feel kind of at liberty to then signal to the kind of libertarian left on social issues where they're saying, yeah, we support, um, you know, uh, the Black Lives Matter organization. We support critical race theory programs. We support uh, the kind of internal HR policies that dovetail with these uh, with these uh, theories. And it's kind of a strange thing, but they're I I think they're they're feeling uh, like it's not worth the risk to push back against them socially. And they've already secured their kind of economic uh, status and their economic policies that they want. Uh, so there's really no benefit for them to kind of uh, moderate their positions to kind of appease maybe, let's say, the, the, the kind of social conservative or the cultural right. Um, so uh, consequently, you have this kind of funny uh, environment where uh, corporations are, uh, are kind of supporting... Um, You know, the the, the very left uh, social policies and social practices, and then, you know, supporting and benefiting from the very uh, right and very right libertarian uh, economic policies and practices.
0: Well, so where does this leave everybody else? I mean, if you're just a a normal person, uh, you like the American way, you like uh, the colorblind rule of law, uh, what do we do? Where do we go?
1: You know, I I think that the 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 issue is that there's kind of a a kind of con, a kind of elite consensus that is, um, kind of pro, uh, kind of socially progressive and and economically uh, libertarian that that is actually you know probably the least popular quadrant as far as the American kind of political center. You know, the largest majority of Americans, according to some of the social science data that I've seen, are are kind of economically liberal and socially conservative, and yet they're really not represented where very well almost anywhere. So we have a kind of separation uh, between mainstream American uh, culture and the actual kind of views and preferences of uh, the kind of largest uh, block of American uh, citizens that is separated uh, from the kind of both the elite left and the elite right discourse. And uh, I, I think this is going to be a really interesting political dynamic in, in, the, in the months and years to come. Uh, how are things going to reshape? Are, is elite the kind of elite consensus going to reshape uh, the popular consensus, or is the popular consensus going to find uh, an avenue of political power in order to kind of uh, uh, change or reshape that elite consensus? And uh, I, I don't know. I don't think anyone really knows. Uh, and I think it'll be a, a fascinating process to watch unfold.
0: Well, it certainly sounds like we're in a pickle. Um, thank you, Chris. Uh, your, your research sounds fascinating, and I look forward to uh, you know, seeing more of it. Well, don't forget to check out Chris Rufo's work on the City Journal website, city-journal.org. We'll link to his author page in the description. You can follow him on Twitter, at Rufo. Chris's latest short documentary, Uh, which was released at the beginning of August and can be found on YouTube, is called Chaos by the Bay, The Truth About Homelessness in San Francisco. It's really uh, disturbing, actually. Um, You can find City Journal on Twitter at City Journal and Instagram at City Journal underscore MI. As always, if you like what you heard on the podcast, give us a five-star rating on iTunes. Thanks for listening, and thanks, Chris, for joining us.